I'm Richard Holt, and welcome to this, the fifth and next-to-last lecture in our series, and it's one I'm very excited about. Today, we will discuss psychedelic treatments, with a focus primarily on psilocybin-like compounds, which include LSD, DMT, and ayahuasca, but also a brief introduction to MDMA, which, like psilocybin, will likely be re-entering broader use in the treatment of depression and anxiety in the near future. This is essentially the subject of Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, and I'm not ashamed to admit that this lecture series is in large part my own attempt to amplify and deepen Pollan's thesis that these agents will soon transform the practice of psychiatry, and we need to be ready. In the last talk, we discussed ketamine, mainly because it's already being used clinically and so gives us a glimpse into the broader paradigm shift to come. As you'll recall, Ketamine produces its psychoactive effects by blocking NMDA glutamate receptors. I've mentioned on a couple of occasions that psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, and DMT, produce transient disruption of the functional connectivity of the default mode network. I've also alluded to the fact that these agents all stimulate a class of serotonin receptors, called 2A receptors. Because the chemical shorthand for 5-hydroxytryptamine, or serotonin, is 5-HT, we collectively refer to this class of psychoactive substances as 5-HT2A agonists. The next part of our talk today will take a granular look at what this actually means inside the brain, how it changes information flows, and ultimately consciousness. By contrast, 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine, or MDMA, which we will discuss in the final section, exerts its effects primarily through large-scale serotonin release via 5-HT1A and 5-HT1B agonism, but also has considerable noradrenergic and some amphetamine-like dopaminergic properties as well. Collectively, these agents are sometimes referred to as entheogens, which is another way of saying substances that produce mystical alterations of consciousness. These are powerful substances, but not intrinsically miracle drugs. I want to be clear here. I support the broad availability of safely manufactured entheogens and think it's absurd to criminalize their use. I also readily acknowledge that recreational use of entheogens without therapeutic intent can be both risky and a lot of fun. Finally, I don't think that the medical system ought to be the final arbiter of what constitutes therapeutic use of entheogens. I work from a neuroscience-based clinical model. That's my perspective but I don't pretend that it's the only or even best way to frame the relationship between anyone else's brain and these compounds. So, staying within the contexts of medicine and neuroscience, I'll start by pointing out that most of our medicines work gradually, and that the ones that work quickly, such as benzodiazepines and amphetamines, are tightly and appropriately regulated. But I'd argue that entheogens are qualitatively different from any of these, insofar as the experiences they offer are intense immediate, and can shift perceptions globally and quickly, often with a single dose. We haven't really ever had anything like that in psychiatry. And this is why mastering the concepts of set and setting are really the starting points for anyone considering using entheogens therapeutically. As I noted in my discussion of ketamine therapy, the treatment environment, or setting, is an important consideration. This is because the foundational aspects of consciousness, environmental sampling and model generating, are still occurring. Under the influence of entheogens, entrenched computational biases are disrupted. In the case of ketamine, we discussed how releasing subcortical information flows from the burst firing of the lateral habenula restores normal reward-seeking and salience, 
which in turn can create a rupture in entrenched models of learned helplessness. The openness, unpredictability, and vulnerability of those minutes to hours one spends in the embrace of entheogens requires a curated space in order for this experience to unfold. First and foremost, this means a safe space. And as I've noted previously, less is often more in this space. As the point of the treatment is, in part, to allow the system to hall of mirrors to explore itself absent the rigid metacognition and committed identity that can prevent openness to change. It's really easy to accidentally overcrowd that time and that space with distracting stimuli, and this can cause problems. I'll give an example. One of my colleagues, a pain specialist, was given his choice of procedural anesthesia when he went to his local emergency department with a knee injury. He elected to try ketamine, partially out of respect for its anesthetic qualities, but also out of curiosity about its psychoactive properties. In the bright, loud, chaotic ED environment, it was not a pleasant experience. My colleague recounted that he floated out of his body into another room down the hall. An entity he sensed to be God was waiting there for him, a terrifying presence that immobilized his disembodied spirit. After what felt like an eternity, God told him that he was dead, and before my colleague could fully absorb this revelation, the entity also revealed that God itself didn't exist. My colleague returned to his body feeling disoriented and distressed, and having gained little from the experience beyond a good story to tell at conferences. I suspect that ketamine administered in a more comfortable setting would have delivered a similar message, but in a way that would have allowed my colleague to experience the wave of existential dread as a growth opportunity rather than a nightmare. This leads us to the notion of set as the ultimate meaning of the experience will not just reflect the physical treatment environment, but also be profoundly influenced by the mental state or mindset through which the treatment is entered. This set is created through preparation before and therapeutic work after the experience itself. In particular, it helps to understand in advance that the disruption of everyday consciousness may be a distressing and intense experience but that following the journey wherever it takes you almost invariably involves passing through these difficult spaces into a state of clarity and receptiveness to new ways of being. It's also important to actively cultivate and explore states of openness in the weeks to months after treatment. Models do not change themselves, and entrenched beliefs have a way of creeping back unless new models are reinforced with intentionality. The point, after all, is not to lurch from treatment to treatment, but to establish models and metacognition that are robust, flexible, and that maintain a Bayes-optimal and mutually beneficial conversation between systems one and two. And there are a couple of common themes that emerge from psychedelic experiences, particularly those produced by 5-HT2A agonists such as psilocybin. The first of these is a renewed sense of wonder at the otherness on offer all around us, this is something akin to the Buddhist notion of child mind, or beginner's mind. And while I'm borrowing philosophical language here, I want to reinforce that there is nothing essentially mystical going on. As I've mentioned previously, and as I will explore further in the next section, this is likely the result of how psilocybin-like agents transiently disrupt the default mode network. The other common theme that accompanies psychedelic experiences is an overwhelming awareness that love is all there is. And I'll admit here that I have no easy answer as to why this is. The final lecture in this series is my attempt to understand this curious aspect of consciousness, the wonder and love that emerges even as you become aware of your own insignificance. But first, 
let's take one last overview of the framework of consciousness we've established over the past four talks. I've pared these down to four basic axioms, which will collectively support the discussion at hand regarding entheogens and how to change your mind, with or without them. These axioms will also allow us to pivot to the difficult and more speculative task of explaining why any of this exists at all, and why all that you experience, everything you feel, everything you believe, is a model of the relationship between your improbability and the entropy that will ultimately consume it. Axiom 1. You feel, therefore you are. This is the axiom of consciousness, and it starts with the notion that there is a distinct sensation, that there is something that it is to be like you, and that it is fundamentally experienced as an alloy or summation of bodily arousal levels, each with a specific quality. These are called affects. Subcortical system 1 manages the information flows that govern affects. System 1 is arranged in feedback loops with defined anatomical brain nuclei and pathways. Bodily affects are primal sensations that arise from cell and tissue level cognition. These include thirst, urinary urgency, air hunger, and pain. The emotional affects consist of a small number of motivated sensation action circuits that keep the organism safe and sated through orchestration of an associated pattern of behavior. These circuits are seeking, fear, rage, panic, lust, care, and play. Affects are not experienced until they are resubmitted to the action selection consciousness region located within system one. This is called the periaqueductal gray. A host of stimulus-bound actions and associative learning can be carried out independently by System 1, but its structural and functional organization impose limits on the temporal depth over which it can act. Axiom 2. You think. Therefore, you think you are. I call this the axiom of self-consciousness, and it starts with identity or the experience of a self as protagonist, which itself requires the capacity to model a broader reality. These models are held in cortical system two, and are experienced as beliefs. You, the world around you, and the flow of time are deeply embedded beliefs. System two information must be submitted back into system one in order to be experienced as part of consciousness. In this manner, axiom two depends upon axiom one. Unlike System 1, System 2 is deliberative and can hold narratives spanning a variety of temporal depths. System 2 processes information via predictive, hierarchical, Bayesian inference. System 2 also holds metacognitive models that set the boundaries on when and how you update your models by changing your belief systems. System 2 is arranged anatomically in networks of activity connecting areas of regional specialization rather than specific tracks and nuclei, so has much more plasticity than System 1. The default mode network is one such network, and is the reservoir of a stable model of self-perspective across time. The default mode network is minimally active when you are externally or task-focused, but accounts for most of the resting brain's metabolic demand. Axiom 3. Reality and the self are constructed to manage entropy.
This is the axiom of contingency, and it flows as an extension of axioms 1 and 2. The self, as a boundaried system, is an example of a Markov blanket, a statistical partition with an internal informational geometry. This is the chalk circle on the blackboard I introduced in Lecture 2. The bounded system that is you maintains its existence across time and circumstance through self-evidencing, which depends on Bayes' optimal inferential fidelity vis-a-vis -vis the outside world. Reality and the self are thus inherently normative, or contingent upon models held within an informational boundary, the Markov blanket, rather than stable facts. The embodied consciousness within the Markov blanket of you experiences its relative proximity to dissolution into the ambient heat bath, or non-existence, as a form of informational entropy called surprisal. However, not all surprises are threats. Every action taken in System 1 and every model held in System 2 that guide those actions are motivated by free energy minimization to manage surprisal and to withstand the force of entropy. Informational entropy can be resolved by either updating your models of self and or the world or by taking action to preserve the existing models. Dreaming, fantasy, denial, hallucinations, and delusions as experiences all reflect Markov internal states or traits that constrain the fidelity of informational flows across systems 1 and 2, pushing them away from Bayes' optimal. Markov internal deviations from Bayes' optimal are neither inherently bad or good, but generally have adaptive consequences. Axiom 4. The human brain has the unique capacity to believe anything. This is the notion of permissive inference, and is perhaps the most difficult of the axioms to truly internalize. And it begins with those large specialized pyramidal neurons in the cortex, called de economo neurons, which arose to meet the increased computational demand associated with social cognition. This evolutionary leap took place independently in several social species, elephants, certain primates, and cetaceans. In humans uniquely, though, the economo neuron appears to have become engaged in a positive feedback loop with language, abstraction, and tool use. As free energy constraints become more permissive, so do the feedback loops intended to correct inferential errors. The species-level survival advantage is passed onto individual brains as tolerance of high entropy inference. This capacity to imagine deeply can also imprison us in models and metacognition that paradoxically constrain our reality testing. The underlying architecture and function of System 1 remain relatively unchanged. As a consequence, our limited palette of affects struggle to match consciousness to persistent high-entropy models. Beliefs that resist Bayes' optimal informational sampling are often experienced as anxiety states and dysphoria. Or in the words of T.S. Eliot, we think of the key, each in his prison. Thinking of the key, each confirms a prison. Hopefully, all of this will sound passingly familiar from the previous talks. And before moving on, I'll restate these four axioms as simply as I can one last time. Axiom 1, the axiom of consciousness. Consciousness is embodied and experienced in System 1. Axiom 2, the axiom of self-consciousness. 
beliefs, including the belief in a self, are models held in System 2. Axiom 3, the axiom of contingency. The experience of a unitary reality is a continuously updating prediction assembled to manage informational entropy. Axiom 4, the axiom of permissive inference. The brain evolved to overwhelmingly favor low entropy beliefs, but humans can believe anything. I'm also going to tip my hand here and tell you that you already know Axiom 5, the axiom of change, which I consider the final foundational axiom of modern biological psychiatry. I've stated it many times already in this series. You can either change your model or act in a manner to preserve it. As we shall see in the final lecture, this constraint is built into the informational fabric of the universe. So, as much as I'd like to tell you, and myself otherwise, half measures are unlikely to direct consciousness away from the hall of mirrors inside your head. Letting go of all the active filters that warp our sensory mirror of the world outside our Markov blankets can feel like a kind of death. Unsurprisingly, this notion of ego death as a transformational liminal experience recurs constantly in philosophy, religion, and psychology. And because I have from the very outset of this series emphasized the irreducibility of subjective experience, there's a reason it's the first axiom. We also examine the computational architecture beneath this ego death and the numinous sensation of tripping. And finally, while we'll explore this axiom through the lens of psychedelic therapies, it is based in the fundamental informational constraints of Markov systems, which we've alluded to previously, and which will be addressed again in the sixth and final talk in this series. In the second talk in this series, I introduced the default mode network, a functionally integrated group of brain regions that are largely quiescent while the brain is outwardly directed, but become robustly active when task-focused stops. As informational flows turn away from environmental sampling and navigation, the resulting increase in default mode network activity is correlated with increased self-awareness. This recursive, inwardly directed state biases cognition towards internal models or beliefs and away from environmental sampling. Sometimes this mind-wandering is pleasurable, as when the noise inside our head is fueled by inspired imagination. And while the default mode network is not uniquely human, the computational and creative capacity of the human brain is, in large part due to the presence of numerous de economo neurons. But the activity of the default mode network can also support models that are overly bound to past experience, overly committed to beliefs that require effortful data filtering to maintain, and resistance to change, even in the face of overwhelming contrary evidence. These inflexible, high-entropy models, in turn, drive belief-reinforcing behavioral patterns. This is the axiom of permissive inference I introduced a moment ago. In the third lecture, I gave the example of the motivated self-delusion of flat-earth beliefs and contrasted that with the trait abnormalities that underlie delusions in schizophrenia. In the fourth talk, 
I introduced the aversive learning that entrenches models of unsafety in post-traumatic stress disorder, and how the resulting resistance to environmental sampling that suggests safety leads to hypervigilance and avoidance behaviors. Loosening the grip of the default mode network in these instances can be very helpful in moving the brain back towards Bayes' optimal inference, which is just another way of saying minimally biased epistemic foraging, or even more simply, openness to change. These changes aren't just called computations, however. They feel like something. And taking entheogens doesn't feel like being suddenly good at Sudoku or crossword puzzles. In fact, it can feel like your whole reality is being torn apart. And the shamanic visions that these agents can inspire are not incidental. They are a core feature. The subjective alterations of consciousness that accompany various levels and duration of 5-HT2A agonism are often ineffable, mystical, and difficult to describe. Under psychedelic influence, the visual cortex sees images and patterns that are like, but also completely unlike anything we've ever seen before. The weft of reality loosens to reveal its uncanny warp. When I try to grasp how these substances act in the brain and what that feels like, what stands out is the sheer quantity of inputs required to create a single instant of consciousness, and how this exposes the oversimplification inherent in breaking it into systems one and two and the default mode network. I am particularly interested in how entheogens reveal the layered modular construction beneath our experienced world, or umwelt. The neural correlate to psychedelic experience is a decoupling of the careful integration of sensory and model data that constructs moment-to-moment -moment consciousness. And within this dizzyingly complex workspace, the default mode network is not simply a lock into which the key of 5-HT2A is inserted and turned. For while the default mode network can rightly be conceptualized as the final common pathway of psychedelic action, much of the actual 5-HT2A activity takes place elsewhere. I can think of no better example of this than the claustrum, a part of the brain that I had, until recently, largely ignored since basic neuroscience. Nestled within the external capsule between the putamen and insula, the claustrum is sometimes referred to as the wall of the brain. The claustrum does not fit easily into the categories of cortical or subcortical, and it similarly resists classification within the System 1 and System 2 framework. This non-cortical lamina of neurons, almost an afterthought in the brain's observed anatomy, does a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to consciousness. First off, it would not be much of an overstatement to say that the claustrum is connected to everywhere else in the brain. It connects richly to subcortical areas, including the thalamus, hippocampus, and basal ganglia, but also to a wide variety of cortical areas, from sensory areas to affective processing areas, executive areas, and the default mode network. Functionally, the claustrum integrates simultaneously arriving sensory and emotional information into a unified picture of a self and its environment. Like most excitatory neurons, those in the claustrum use the neurotransmitter glutamate. Recalling ketamine's mechanism of action blocking MMDA glutamate receptors, deactivation of the claustrum may be responsible, in part, for its dissociative qualities. This, in turn, is what endows ketamine with a broad spectrum of uses, from procedural anesthesia to deep sedation. This may also explain why prolonged ICU sedation under ketamine and chronic heavy recreational use can be a source of lingering cognitive deficits in certain individuals. 
Interestingly, unlike psilocybin and MDMA, ketamine's antidepressant efficacy is not especially correlated with the intensity of the treatment experience, which suggests that the claustrum, a key player in psilocybin's action, may be more of a bystander in terms of ketamine's therapy for depression. It also turns out that the claustrum is especially rich in 5-HT2A receptors. When activated by psychedelics, the 5-HT2A receptors expressed within the claustrum orchestrate far more nuanced alterations than those mediated by ketamine, which, as I just noted, globally suppresses these integrative centers. For example, psilocybin and LSD significantly decrease functional connectivity between the claustrum and the default mode network, but also increase other connections such as those between the claustrum and the frontoparietal network, an executive area active during adaptive task control and shifting. Beyond the claustrum, psychedelics modulate a wide variety of connections between systems one and two, and not always in the same direction, or even in ways that can be fully explained through their primary mechanism of action alone. For example, LSD increases functional connectivity between the thalamus and posterior cingulate cortex, but decreases information flows from the ventral striatum to the thalamus. Again, not all of this can be explained by 5-HT2A agonism alone. But more importantly, the sum of this activity fundamentally rearranges the workspace that assembles moment-to-moment consciousness. The opposing effects of decreased within-network information along with increased between-network communication, essentially forces the brain to grasp for novel connections in order to maintain a flow of experience. It's essentially desegregation for your brain. Experientially, the new reality includes atrophied selfhood, altered sensory processing, and more variable adaptations to task navigation. This is an optimal setting for changing one's mindset. But just as I mentioned, More so than for ketamine, there seems to be a correlation between the subjective experience produced by 5-HT2A agonists, such as psilocybin and LSD, and their antidepressant efficacy. Simply put, what happens during the trip seems to matter here. Let's take a look at why this might be the case, focusing on a part of the brain called the parahippocampus. Among the dizzying array of functionally and cytoarchitecturally distinct cortical regions, The parahippocampus is at least aptly named. Looking at the brain from underneath, the parahippocampus looks like a set of parentheses around the centrally located hippocampi. It's intimately involved in memory formation, visual-spatial processing, and contextualization. Moreover, in mediating these processes, the parahippocampus has important functional connectivity with both the limbic system via the amygdala and to cortical areas leading into the default mode network, such as the posterior cingulate, And while it's impossible to assign the immediate subjective effects of 5-HT2A agonists to one particular area, there is clearly a dose-dependent relationship between parahippocampal decoupling from the amygdala and the default mode network and the mystical phenomenon of peaking on psilocybin and LSD. These effects endure beyond immediate treatment and can have lasting impacts on corticostriatal thalamocortical pathways, those strange loops that filter and form the brain's experiences. That's a lot, so let's restate all that as simply as possible. The non-cortical claustrum integrates sensory and emotional information. The parahippocampal cortex is involved in memory formation and visuospatial processing, and also connects these processes to the limbic system 
and the default mode network. Psilocybin-like agents massively disrupt the informational loops that run continuously through the claustrum, opening some informational gates while closing others. When superimposed upon the 5-HT2A agonism taking place simultaneously in the parahippocampal cortex, the result is the sensation of tripping. This is why tripping on acid or psilocybin mushrooms feels like it does, and also why ketamine feels different than either of these. The qualitative differences of these experiences cannot be fully appreciated or readily explained as merely the difference between mechanisms of action at the neurotransmitter level. Rather, it goes back to my earlier argument that the differences are better appreciated as informational flows and their computational outputs, which are in the end ultimately experiences. An analogy to describe the difference between ketamine and psilocybin-like compounds would thus go something like this. If consciousness was displayed on a computer screen, ketamine can really only variably dim the screen and alter its resolution, whereas psilocybin can fundamentally alter the color of each pixel, along with the collective patterns they form. Therapeutically, this means that ketamine can often do a really good job of dissolving anxious distress, but doesn't leave the patient with much in the way of models as to why things have improved. It just feels better, like the clouds have parted. Psilocybin treatment, by contrast, often leaves the patient with a very clear shift in beliefs, an openness to and engagement with specific and novel ideas. Like ketamine and other therapeutic drugs, treatment response to psilocybin and LSD is dose-dependent. For LSD, as an example, microdosing on subhallucinogenic doses of 20 micrograms or less has become a popular form of stimulating creativity and boosting mood but has yet to demonstrate any appreciable benefits or risks for that matter when rigorously tested for these effects. That doesn't mean that these benefits don't exist, but from a purely mechanistic perspective, it would be hard to distinguish microdosing effects from any number of potential confounders, including the placebo effect. At the other extreme, some data from limited use of LSD in the 60s and 70s for treatment of alcohol dependence report that doses in excess of 200 micrograms were sometimes required. The general consensus today would suggest that there's little in the way of benefit at doses that high, and significant risks of anxiety and negative arousal. It's my belief that the bulk of LSD's therapeutic dose response curve falls between 35 and 100 micrograms. The experienced disruption of everyday consciousness at these doses appears sufficiently salient to attain a sense of peaking, which corresponds to the dissolution of the functional connectivity holding established metacognition in place or, to paraphrase William Blake, himself no stranger to altered consciousness, once the doors of perception are opened, one sees things as they truly are, infinite. It's unlikely that LSD will return to the therapeutic fold or legalization anytime soon, primarily due to its association with 1960s counterculture, but also because its immediate effects last the better part of a day. Few clinical spaces are currently configured to provide the retreat-like setting that this would require. Psilocybin has thus become the 5-HT2A agonist of choice for modern research purposes, and is well along the pathway to therapeutic approval. Doses in the range of 20 to 30 milligrams appear to be the current settled upon standard, and result in a treatment that can be rendered in under six hours. I suspect that drug development will lead to shorter acting agents, although I cannot help but wonder what is gained, and potentially lost, by bending entheogens to the clinical demands of medical practice. I'd rather us let these agents show us how to best use them. And I don't mean that in a spiritual way, but rather to acknowledge that there are innate limitations to how the brain changes, 
learns, and experiences differently. And any psychedelic guide will tell you that DMT, LSD, psilocybin, and ayahuasca, all 5-HT2A agonists, are very different experiences and require a very different set and setting. Again, set and setting are not one-size-fits-all and must take individual vulnerabilities, cultural influences, and motivation deeply into account. For example, the mushrooms in which psilocybin naturally occur also include other compounds, such as psilocin and phenylethylamine, and others that have yet to be fully investigated. The synergistic effects of these compounds are not yet fully understood, and produce for many individuals a gentler experience than LSD. Similarly, the ceremonies surrounding ayahuasca are supported by established cultural traditions, a distinct set and setting, that are vulnerable to appropriation by well-intentioned seekers and outright charlatans alike. This is why I have taken such great care in establishing context in the form of basic axioms of biological psychiatry, in defining cognition and consciousness as I understand them. Even were I to fantasize that I am a shaman, this is simply not who I am. I'm a psychiatrist and a devotee of neuroscience, and inherent in that worldview is the unavoidably contingent subjective nature of existence inside a Markov blanket. From that perspective, I cannot know the mind of God. I can only know the second law of thermodynamics, not whether or not it has an author. I have made what I feel is the best, most rational case for the use of various entheogens in psychiatric practice. I'd also like to point out that the axioms I've elaborated support, but in no way demand, entheogen use to leverage therapeutic change. Meditation, cold water immersion, holotropic breathwork, tantra, all of these can be transformative. There are undoubtedly paths to healing I have not imagined, more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in my philosophy. I'll reserve those musings, however, for the final talk and move now to a discussion of the unique niche that MDMA occupies among the entheogens, and how it may arrive sooner rather than later at a clinic near you. I have chosen to end this lecture with a discussion of MDMA for a couple of reasons. First, MDMA has a unique mechanism of action and a related experience that allows us to revisit the importance of set and setting. Secondly, MDMA has a bit of an unusual history, insofar as it enjoyed a period of legal, albeit not exactly mainstream, use in psychotherapy before being illegalized in 1985. Finally, MDMA is currently wrapping up Phase three clinical trials in the United States, so may become therapeutically available again very soon. So let's start with a brief overview of what MDMA, or 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine, does in the brain, and how this produces a distinct experience. We've spent a lot of time on the 5-HT2A receptor, noting especially how its neuroanatomical distribution in and around the default mode network influences the experience produced by psychedelic agents such as psilocybin and LSD. Way back in lecture two, I also noted briefly that modulating 5-HT2A in the opposite direction with atypical antipsychotic medications can help treat symptoms of schizophrenia. Although MDMA has been shown to decrease functional connectivity within the default mode network, 
it shares little else in common mechanistically with psilocybin and LSD. For example, while MDMA profoundly impacts serotonin systems, it does this through a very different set of serotonin receptors, namely 5-HT1A and 5-HT1B, both of which it activates. While this much is clearly established, the specifics are far from clear. Let's take a look at what we do know. And let's start with the 5-HT1A receptors, and in particular those located in the hippocampus. In the RAFA, the 5-HT1A is used as a feedback autoreceptor on serotonergic neurons to reduce activity. But 5-HT1A is also used to activate cells downstream of those same serotonin neurons through so-called heteroreceptors. It is in part the balance between these opposing activities that defines the therapeutic antidepressant effects and limitations of serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the current first-line agents used to treat depression. The hippocampus has the highest density of these 5-HT1A heteroceptors in the brain, and the net effect of their activation is an extinction of conditioned fear responses, even those held in place by prolonged cortisol-mediated stress responses. This stress resilience model appears to align well with the observed effects of MDMA, which elicits deep empathy and is remarkably effective at holding negative affects at bay, while even the most difficult content is brought forth in session. Although increased 5-HT1A heteroreceptor signaling is a hallmark of treatment response in depression, it is rarely a direct target of existing therapies. In fact, we've got medications already, namely Pindolol and Buspirone, that act directly on 5-HT1A, and neither has been a game-changer for psychiatry. And no amount of either can replicate the powerful experience provided by MDMA. I suspect that a couple of things are going on here, and one of them is that MDMA liberates a lot of this 5-HT1A heteroceptor-mediated activity very quickly. In addition, MDMA's antagonism at 5-HT1B may transiently reverse impaired receptor binding in the hippocampus and anterior cingulate cortex, which is seen in both major depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Collectively, this mix of robust 5-HT1A and modest 5-HT1B agonism leaves the brain awash in a very particular serotonergic milieu. But wait, there's more. In addition to its primary and immediate impact on those serotonin systems I've just noted, it cannot be ignored that MDMA is also an amphetamine derivative, and as such boosts ventral tegmental seeking system activity, albeit far more weakly than its amphetamine cousins. And then there is MDMA's not insignificant noradrenergic agonism to be considered. Not only is MDMA's affinity for the norepinephrine receptor higher than for serotonin, Virtually all of its sympathomimetic and much of its acute psychoactive activity vanishes in the presence of agents that prevent increases in circulating norepinephrine, such as raboxetine or duloxetine. Other putative mechanisms of action include neurohormonal effects on cortisol and oxytocin, but these are speculative and not directly supported by current research. This is not to say that there are no neurohormonal effects from MDMA treatment, rather that these would be indirect and nonspecific. This reinforces a point I've stated before, namely that neurotransmitter effects are but part of the larger, highly integrated information flows that create the workspace of consciousness, 
and MDMA is no exception. In the case of MDMA, the transient subjective experience of mild euphoria, affiliativeness, and stress resilience appear to be largely subcortical, limbic phenomena. But with enough secondary disruptions to within-networked activity of the default mode network to give it real potential value as a therapeutic agent in loosening rigid metacognition. But it's also no accident that, of the entheogens we've thus far discussed, MDMA enjoys the most widespread recreational use. For while a challenging experience is a tolerable side effect of ketamine therapy, and can even have real therapeutic value with psilocybin and LSD, the embodied, empathic, euphoric state MDMA engenders is really the entire point. This is why it is ideally suited for the treatment of PTSD, acting as a direct override of the limbic inputs that sustain models of unsafety. But taking a brief look at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, Manual for MDMA Treatment of PTSD, underscores just how much set and setting still matter. Months of preparatory therapy, a carefully cultivated treatment experience, and post-treatment support are still required. This is not how most outpatient mental health clinics are set up or resourced. And to their credit, MAPS does an admirable job of advancing not just MDMA therapy, but also advocating for systems delivery, economic support, and equity to make it widely available to all for whom it may offer benefit. Now that we've got a basic sense of where MDMA fits within the family of entheogens, let's take a closer look at MDMA in history and practice. Chemists have been, if you will forgive the pun, tweaking the amphetamine molecule to parse its psychoactive effects for well over a century. MDMA was first synthesized in 1912, but did not come to clinical intention until the 1960s, primarily as an adjunct to psychotherapy, which at the time was still dominated by psychoanalytic theory. As its use began to increase, both therapeutically and recreationally, throughout the 1970s, MDMA lingered in a state of legal limbo, neither an FDA-approved drug nor a controlled substance. This status limited research, but anecdotal evidence of its therapeutic potential accumulated, even as larger cultural shifts of the 1980s turned broadly towards prohibition. I actually remember the first time I heard about MDMA. I was 16 and watching the Phil Donahue show with my mother, during which a charismatic doctor and his patients gave testimonial after testimonial to the positive effects ecstasy had engendered in their lives, followed by a dour DEA official vaguely warning about the risks of so much unfettered bliss. I recall my mother shouting, sign me up, after the show, although I'm not sure if she ever tuned in and turned on, as it were. The current therapeutic standard dose of MDMA falls between 75 and 175 milligrams, sometimes given in divided doses, and its effects tend to last three to six hours. MDMA is mildly sympathomimetic due to its noradrenaline effects, which means it normally produces increases in heart rate and blood pressure. These changes, however, are similar to those observed with ketamine and are rarely of clinical significance. Because it rings out serotonin so effectively, MDMA does carry the risk of serotonin syndrome, a very dangerous condition, as well as hyperthermia and hyponatremia, especially when used with other serotonergic agents. There are also credible case reports of rebound dysphoria and paradoxical responses, including increased anxiety and suicidal thinking. I have personally treated a case in which exposure to MDMA appears to have triggered the rare and dangerous side effect of intrusive suicidal compulsions 
in an otherwise healthy individual. Interestingly, this occurred the morning after use and resolved spontaneously within 24 hours. But these are rare events, and in clinical settings, MDMA has demonstrated an excellent safety and tolerability profile. The risks posed by adulterated or mislabeled designer or other club drugs, which are often passed off as molly among recreational users, are considerably higher. If I were to hazard a guess about how all of this shakes out, I foresee MDMA finding a lasting foothold in the treatment of PTSD, for which structured psychotherapy is already a mainstay, and for which we currently lack reliably effective pharmaceuticals. I don't think it will outperform either psilocybin or ketamine for depression, both of which have evidence of enduring antidepressant effects weeks to months after as little as a single treatment. MDMA lacks this property, and so will remain best suited to assisted psychotherapy. No matter what happens, health systems will need to adopt clinical practices that support set and setting in order to realize entheogens' full potential. And with that, we have arrived at the end of our fifth lecture on the foundations of biological psychiatry. Our journey began with a broad outline of the distinct forms of cognition that take place in subcortical affective circuits, and how these interact with specialized cortical areas to produce the foundations of consciousness. We then looked more deeply at the Bayesian brain and the default mode network. Along the way, we looked at how these concepts inform our understanding of affect and mood, and help us to engage them effectively. We then looked at dreaming as a kind of motivated inference in informational darkness, and how dream logic hues closer to older Freudian models than modern neuroscience is sometimes comfortable acknowledging. This was in turn our entree into some of the ways that the Bayesian brain strays, at times dramatically, from optimal inference in the course of its epistemic foraging. And we hopefully learned that subjective experience is a teacher, and that we need to hold space to let it do its teaching. In the last lecture, the phenomenon of human anxiety was used to examine the Bayesian brain in evolutionary context and to reinforce the embodied nature of consciousness in the face of belief formation and maintenance. We then discussed the computational architecture of specific clinical entities, including post-traumatic stress disorder and obsessive-compulsive disorder, as well as the role of ketamine in the treatment of anxious distress. And the present talk has attempted to distill all of this into broad axioms supporting biological psychiatry's approach to therapeutic change then highlighted how psilocybin and MDMA can be used to further this goal. I've done this in part to support the more speculative musings I will indulge in the final talk in this series, but I've also done it to hold myself accountable to the challenge physicist Richard Feynman left on his blackboard at Caltech to all those who wrestle with big ideas. What I cannot create, I do not understand. I hope that, in so doing, I've created something that helps you understand yourself, your patients, and your world.